Hi, I'm Michaela, a psychotherapist. Hi, I'm Savannah, not a psychotherapist. Welcome to our podcast, Be You, Find Happy. Real life conversations about life and the pursuit of happiness. Welcome back to Be You, Find Happy, the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. This week, I have Lisa Wentz, author of the book, Grace Under Pressure a guide in public speaking. But the truth is, there are so many situations where we have to speak in front of others. How do we express our truth while facing our fears? Lisa's going to tell you a little bit about how to be more courageous when you are talking in front of really anybody. Give this podcast a listen, and then don't forget to hit like, hit subscribe, leave us a comment. We can't wait to hear your thoughts. Hello. Hi. I see you're here. <laughs> I'm thrilled to really connect on on the concepts that you talk about in your new book, Grace Under Pressure. So, so let's let me ask you first of all, what inspired you to write this story? What what is your background that kind of brought brought you to this place? Yes, the inspiration to write the book was twofold. The most mostly it was my clients because so many of my clients come in with similar stories about what holds them back from really showing up in an authentic way when they're speaking in public or in meetings, different different arenas, and what holds them back from really having confidence, um, sometimes so much so that they'll turn down speaking engagements and things like that. And I just wanted people to know that, you know, you're not the only one that feels nervous. You're not the only one who has maybe some negative messaging from childhood or from your school that you went to or even adulthood that has kicked you off of being really confident in presenting yourself and your ideas. And that's, so that's part of it. So I could reach more people. And then the second part is that even though there's quite a lot of public speaking books out you know, out there, there are, it's a saturated area, really. Um, there's not a lot of public speaking books that give step-by-step instruction on how to be a better speaker, whereas this book has 34 exercises in it from start to finish. And that's why the subtitle is a masterclass in public speaking. It really is a class with techniques that you can use and put into put work for yourself. Um, but going back to my background, uh, my background was a lot had a lot to do with overcoming obstacles. Uh, I come from a very um, dysfunctional upbringing and had to learn to talk to people in a way that they could uh, hear and understand me so that I could get needs met because I left home at 13 and, and took my parents to court um, in the state of California to ask to be taken into protective custody. And it took me a year to do it. It was really a, a long process. And that was the beginning of my understanding that you have to be able to talk to people to get needs met in life and to be heard and to get your point across. Whereas before I was a com- complete introvert and I still am for the most part, energetically speaking. Um, but that was that was my beginnings of realizing how important it is to be able to communicate. Um, from there, I, I studied psychology in college. I was an actress for 10 years, and I just kept sort of deepening my understanding of human behavior, overcoming obstacles that hold us back in life, and how that plays out in terms of presenting yourself in a public speaking arena. Does that make sense? 
It does. One of one of my big catchphrases and one of the one of the phrases we use a lot on this podcast is um, I always say that people have an obligation to speak their truth so long as they say it with grace. So that really kind of ties in to what you're talking about. And though the book sounds to be a class for people in public speaking, I can see so many correlations to just everyday conversation even because how often do we allow those obstacles that you're describing to hold us back in just our, you know, common relationships. Yeah, there's that too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what are some of these obstacles that hold people back? Can you share some of those with me? Yeah, sure. Of course. So in the first part of the book, I do go into some client stories and I try to cover bits and pieces. So let's, let's look at stage fright and confidence, right? Some of stage fright is just, a very simple and natural response to feeling eyes on you, being watched and all that. And sometimes it might just take practice and technique because public speaking or even standing up in front of your team members at a meeting or asserting yourself at a meeting, to me, that's public speaking as well, you know. Um, it takes practice. So some of it is not necessarily stemming from a really um, a severe trauma or something like that. But there are people who have come into my office who, that do have that. So for instance, uh, I've had a few clients that have come in and told me that their caregivers, parents, whatnot, were very emotionally abusive to them, would ridicule them. And uh, I had one speaker who raised quite a lot of money. She's not in the book, but she raised quite a lot of money for a very large nonprofit in the United States, um, but struggled with, great with one-on-one conversations, but struggled with being seen and heard because she had a father who told her to shut up all through her childhood, you know, just really um, knocking her confidence down. Wow. And she would get quite triggered by the president of her company. And the president of that company, the, the nonprofit, is a well-known speaker and a wonderful person. And he just happened to look just like her dad. It's oh, wow. the weirdest thing, right? I mean, oh, wow. it's so weird. It sounds almost surreal. There's a and it would throw her off and it would intimidate her. So, so she, she needed she needed, yeah, this then. Yeah. She needed to unravel that. So she came to me for that. So there's an example. So getting negative messaging, what I call negative messaging, which leads to false beliefs. So the false belief that would lead from having verbal abuse as a child or in possibly even into your teens might be, I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. I'm, uh, people don't take me seriously, or those kinds of inner voices, those inner critic voices that really need to be brought out, looked at, uh, examined to a degree, and then moved out of the way. Um, Other things that might hold someone back, um, you know, I was sort of hinting at this before, educational institutions. I had a client who became an extreme people pleaser. And he was so nervous all the time as to whether or not other people would like him. And this person is a CEO. Uh, And we worked together on it. And I put this in the book. He's African-American and he grew up in a 99% white community and was faced with constant racial slurs and constant messaging that he wasn't enough and that he couldn't measure up and things like that. He told me that even his high school had ethnic slurs written on walls and no one would take them down um always made to feel less than so in any case there's there's another example of very negative messaging that he absorbed but the way he didn't believe it but there was a part of him that felt like he had to work harder 
So he wasn't really showing up in an authentic way when he was meeting people and networking and raising money for his company. He was showing up as a people pleaser and anxious and that kind of thing. Um, I could go on and on about more obstacles if you'd like. Or, or is that yeah, these are really good examples. One of the things I jotted down while you were talking is, um, you know, th- a lot of the 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 examples that you gave are situations where people have left that negative environment or where they were receiving the negative messages. But a lot of people are still in relationships where they're receiving those negative messages, probably because the person giving them has their own insecurities or their own issues. So how do you proceed in spite of maybe still being in some of these relationships? Like, let's say you're a woman who is maybe in a relationship with someone who, you know, is an insecure person or has their own stuff. And so they tend to spew yucky on you, but you're still, but you still have this job that you go to and you need to, you know, maybe public speaker to these things. Right. When you say relationship, do you mean a professional relationship? Well, it could be, or it could be even just at home, maybe their spouse, uh, you know, men, male or female is maybe still feeding them these negative messages. So they, so maybe they're still in that situation. How how do you kind of move forward from there? Sure, sure. Yes, I, I, I hear you. I was talking about people who absorbed the messaging and kept it going, even though they didn't necessarily have the relationship with the other person. Um, So in a professional environment, when I've had clients tell me that they have somebody who's rather toxic or maybe talks down to them or, you know, does things that are just not healthy in the workplace to do uh, competitiveness, these kinds of things. What I try to guide them towards is creating really strong boundaries. If you're working with somebody who's a toxic person, meaning that maybe they're a narcissist or they're, they're the ones in need of attention and results driven only for themselves. First of all, that's not good for any company because that's not I mean that's why Steve Jobs was fired from from Apple and everyone knows that by now you know it's 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 not healthy and people will recognize hopefully recognize that it's not healthy so but let's just say you're a product manager or you're uh, in an executive position or some position where you really are dealing with somebody who's difficult the best thing to do is to create strong boundaries right away do not feed into whatever it is they want you to do and I don't mean want you to do on a project you might be working with them that's one thing do the work but don't feed into any of their narcissism don't allow any pettiness or any uh, criticizing to be absorbed by you. You have to keep a very good distance emotionally from people who are either consciously or unconsciously, maybe they don't even know that they're doing it, uh, trying to sabotage you in any, in any way. So that's one thing, really mm-hmm. strong boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that means not communicating, in a way. So for instance, I had somebody tell me that um, this, God, I have some examples of this. A person would come into her office and blame her for things going wrong. She was the only woman in an entire company. And he'd sort of dump on her and blame her whenever something would go wrong. And so, you know, we worked on just simply standing, not apologizing and standing your ground. If somebody's blaming you or trying to pin something on you that you have no responsibility for, uh, don't absorb it. Don't agree Mm. with it. That kind of thing, you know, or I always like, uh, I always like the, I always like the phrase, um, I'm sorry you feel that way. 
yeah, that popped into I, my head. I'm not owning it. I'm not taking it. But you know, I'm. I certainly have some human empathy for what you're going through. Yeah, you can't yeah. feed into whatever they are doing. So there has to be a really good boundary. Now, so that's professional advice. Personal advice. I've. I, it's rare that I've had anyone ask me for personal advice. I. I did have a client recently who has an abusive relationship, um, unfortunately, with her mother, and the mother is still verbally abusive to her and doesn't she doesn't feel like she can cut her off. I've, you know, say I've asked her for the same kind of thing to keep boundaries to do things that build up your strengths, surround yourself with people who you feel good around, because you need the balance, you need to counterbalance the negative negativity. But if somebody came into my office, and I'm going to be straight with you, and told me they were in an abusive relationship verbally, physically, or otherwise with a romantic partner, I would have no problem saying, leave the relationship. Mm -hmm. There is never a reason to stay in an abusive relationship ever. And, you know, if it is truly abusive, if it's arguing because you both are sabotaging the relationship or something like that, then you got to take ownership for your part. But if it's truly an abusive relationship, it's just going to hurt you and get worse. And I'll tell you, I'm going to give you a very extreme example of this. One client came to see me and I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be a doctor, even though I have a very vast background in psychology. I, I'm not, I'm a public speaking coach primarily. I'm not there to diagnose people. Um, I'm there to give advice when it comes to communication skills and help people be better speakers and communicators. So uh, that's a, it's a tricky area to get into when somebody starts to go into their past a little more than maybe they should with me. Um, but I have good boundaries and I can, I can deal with it. But okay, so the extreme example I was just referring to, a woman came to see me and she described a past rela- a recent past relationship she was in for three years. She ended up checking herself into a mental hospital after the relationship had ended mm. and going through shock therapy, mm. um, which is her choice. And I'm not in any way, shape or form criticizing that. I, again, I'm not a doctor. That's not my business to do. However, when she described what she went through in the relationship, it sounded to me that she was in a relationship with somebody who had antisocial personality disorder. This, per- In other words, a sociopath. So the sociopath part of what they do is they go after people they deem as extremely loyal or they, they think have a weakness that they can exploit and they try to control them and manipulate them. And they do it very slowly which is the easiest way to do it uh, so that the pink flags in the beginning just get accepted. And then the more and more abusive they become, the um, person still puts up with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Typically that's, that's a relationship with the sociopath until it ends. And what happened was it got to the point where her thinking was starting to become distorted. Mm. And she, so I'm the point I'm making, this is an extreme example. I said I would give an extreme example, but I just personally do not believe there's any reason ever to stay in a relationship with somebody who wants to be abusive to you. And in the personal life, that's not my business, but if somebody asks my opinion, I'm going to give them my opinion. And in the workplace, um, you know, the best thing again is boundaries, really, really strong boundaries. You said something earlier and I forgot to jot a note because I was listening to intently. <laughs> I'll, it'll come back. Talk about this, uh, that you train people on how to be fearlessly authentic. How do yeah. you encourage people to overcome fear? Is there tips, tricks, advice there? 
Sure. I mean, it partially depends on what what's what's it stemming from in the first place. So we talked a minute ago about looking at if there's something in the past that's still holding them back or giving them some false beliefs in themselves that they are not good enough or not not enough to do what they're doing. And that needs to be removed. It needs to be worked on. And then um, really being present. Really being present is connected to being really authentic. So when you're walking into a room or up to a podium to speak, that you don't have a hidden agenda, mm. that you don't have uh, your mind somewhere else, but really that your mind is on just the purpose for being there, for speaking, the audience in a healthy way. Your mind is on the audience in a healthy way, meaning that you are communicating something of value to them and you would like them to get something out of it and you should clearly define what those things are. And you give yourself enough purpose for speaking that you don't have to second guess, is this a value? Or second guess, am I an expert on this subject? You simply stay present and your mind focused on them and the communication between the two of you. And I'm saying two of you, meaning one is the audience, you are the other two, part of two. So does that make sense about being fearlessly so that we're not hiding? Yeah, I I like that a lot. And what what about the kind of more, I guess, limbic system fear that comes up from, I guess it would probably be rooted in, you know, a lack of acceptance or something like that. Just that kind of natural sweaty palm, you know, choking up sensation that people get when they first have to talk in front of a group. And, and I'm even thinking about, you know, there have been times I live in a small community where people will go to a board meeting for something and they're passionate about it. That's why they're there. They want to be heard, but then they get too nervous to speak in front of everybody. What, mm-hmm. what about that kind of physical fight or flight that cut that, flares up and really stops people from from taking the first step got it so a physiological response to stress or nervousness or stage fright has to be dealt with on a physiological level Uh, you know the mind is what's stimulating the response in the first place but you know the thoughts we've already talked about addressing the thoughts but then you want to you want to counter that adrenaline rush that you're experiencing with breathing and being more present in your body because fight or flight basically takes us out of being present because there's an a danger right and a, a, sometimes a literal danger you could be walking down uh, let's say you're walking on a path and all of a sudden a, a puma comes up that's danger that's literal uh, or you know in a scary neighborhood or something literally is, is not, uh, not safe for you. It, it's funny and you so, even mentioned that because my friend and I'll just go on tangent. My friend and I were talking last night at her house. We were sitting outside near her garden and we started hearing a woman screaming, which was absolutely not a woman screaming. We live in a rural area. It was a mountain lion. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, right. And at that point there was no rational conversation happening any longer. No. No, of course <laughs> you not. You know, I think we're done here. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean that's funny because fight or flight is a healthy response in certain situations. You need to get yourself out of danger, right? Right. Uh but in a situation where you're panicking because of worry, concern, stage fright, uh that's not necessarily something you have to flee from. It just feels like you have to flee from it. And you get what you talked about, your heart races, you get uh, sweaty palms. Uh, you know, for me, if I'm nervous for some reason, my chest gets a little red or something like that. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is set yourself up for success by learning breathing techniques. When we go into fight or flight, our breathing changes very quickly. When we get nervous, 
our posture and our breathing changes quickly and it tightens the neck tightens the rib cage starts to tighten we start to take in less air when we take in less air it's very hard to stay calm we get less oxygen to the brain people who go into the panic where they start losing their their train of thought completely on stage that's happened uh, to many people i'm sure uh and they blank out or those kinds of things, that's a very severe adrenaline rush where you've really gone and your adrenal uh, surge has taken over. And to, to make sure that you don't get to that place, you want to do some breathing exercises and focusing exercises first before even going up to the podium. And that may mean three or four days in advance every day. It may mean just that morning of that speech or that meeting that you have to go to. But you really want to be in control of your body, your breathing patterns, where your eyes are focusing on, and everything else. Um, that will help. That will help set you for, up for success. And better to do it before you go into the situation as opposed to knowing you're going to be nervous, convincing yourself you might not be, and then trying to recover once you are actually at that podium or in that meeting. Does that make sense? It does. So what about the what about the technical reminders, like having your notes there with you? Do you encourage people to put anything on their notes? Do you encourage notes? How, what do you kind of what do you kind of um, suggest from from that perspective? I know when I because I often do public speaking on the topic of happiness. And for me, some bullet point notes, but looking at them is almost more distracting. And then I find myself not being in the moment. So I usually scrap the notes and I just start talking to the audience, you know, as like, they're my friends, like having that normal conversation and reading their nonverbal cues and things like that. What do you recommend there? Yeah, I do go into that in the book. I think it's in the purpose and setting section. So thinking about your setting, where are you speaking and what's the purpose of your speech, right? Because different things will will require will have different requirements. So my advice depends on the actual talk you're giving. If you are giving an extremely long talk <laughs> and it's chock full of information, then I would encourage notes or a comfort monitor that you can look at, uh, you know, so that you don't lose your place. We also don't want to expect too much out of ourselves. You know what I mean? Um, so it just depends on the nature of the talk. If it's a TED talk, it's going to be written out anyway because they're going to have to approve it. Um, that's the nature of TED talks. So, but for a shorter talk and a, on a subject that you really know backwards and forwards complete expert in, then yes, you can make your notes, think about what you want to say, map out your talk, and then know that you have all the information you need and walk on stage and go ahead and do it, if that is something that you feel comfortable doing. So again, there's some things at play there. I think knowing what your comfort level is and what your needs are, knowing what the requirements of the actual speech is. Uh, if I was going to give a half hour talk, I would probably have a comfort monitor myself just because I want to make sure that I, again, I'm present with the audience. And if I want to look down and pick up my next section with my eyes or a card or something, then I would like to be able to do that as opposed to putting any pressure on myself to memorize a, a 30 minute chunk of information. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I was just reflecting as you were talking about how I volunteer for this program called Every 15 Minutes. And it's a program for um, young kids. We, we basically stage an, uh, a drunk driving accident scene at the high school and then they go on a retreat and then there's, um, you know, a parent workshop and I actually lead the parent workshop. And we will often have a speaker who 
is there to talk about their own tragic loss. And, you know, Mm. we've had different speakers over the years. We've had speakers who um, are very far along in their healing process and can still talk about it in such a way that it's very motivational and inspiring and moving, but they don't break down. And then we've had the speakers who don't have their thoughts together and they're kind of rambling on and on. Um, So what about when the, the topic of the, of whatever you're talking about is something that's intensely personal? I'm not sure what your question is. I'm sorry. You're saying if the topic is intensely personal, should people prepare for it? How should they prepare for it? No, I mean, when when you know it's going to trigger an emotional response while you're sharing, how, how do you encourage people to deal with that? The emotional response that's going to come up that maybe you don't you can you can prepare in advance all you want talking in the mirror or even talking to a friend but the minute you're sharing a personal story in front of a large audience yeah i understand now sorry i didn't quite get the question at first so I, partially it's the same answer breathing is your best friend it is your bre- best friend for public speaking because of what we already talked about the the physiological response to stress or now in your situation that you're describing now uh, you know emotion uh, that might lock up your throat or something like that. The breathing is going to calm you. The other part of it is that to go slow and to make a decision, really going slow with your pacing if you're talking about a personal experience. The, because also I think it would be more effective for the audience, but also you know, to not put any pressure on yourself. Let yourself take your time. Mentioned the word control a few minutes ago. When we're in situations where we feel like we don't have much control, uh, it can be scary f- for us. But when we are, when we can remember that the one thing we do have control over in this world is our response to the situation we're in. And if you choose to go up in front of people and talk about a personal experience that is going to be tricky, difficult for you, or um, might bring up some tears or some emotion then you have to give yourself the space to be able to say, I'm willing to do this. It's a safe space for me. And hopefully it is a safe space and I will take my time with it and I will breathe Ooh, I through like it. That. I really and, like that. And then that way you take the short. It's really good. I will take my time with this and I will breathe through it. I like that mantra a lot. Um, because I think of so many times when people have to talk in situations that maybe are not professional work situations, but are, you know, a funeral, for example, or something like that. You know, there yeah. there's so many so many situations where we're called to speak in front of a group um, that maybe isn't about the latest results of the product testing or something. You know, um, so on that, you talk about the Alexander technique. What can you can you share with me a little bit about what that is? Sure. So there was uh, a gentleman named F. M. Alexander who was a Shakespearean actor in the late 1800s. And that was back when there wasn't any voice and speech work or a whole lot of drama training or anything like that. And he um, was losing his voice uh, from from the work he was doing. As we all know, Shakespeare plays are very, very long. (laughs) (laughs) He was losing his voice from using himself incorrectly. He was tightening his neck quite a lot, sort of like the fight or flight response, pulling his head back and down. Uh, you know, like you're going into fight or flight. And since there wasn't any doctors at the time, he wanted to keep his career going. He ended up curing himself from losing his voice repetitively. Um, and, then, and then in showing other people how he did it, he basically 
in a weird way by accident, developed this technique. He, and what he found within the technique that is the most profound probably part of it, or one of them, is that the head-neck-back relationship is delicate and all vertebrates have, that we would call that their primary control of coordination. And when we interfere with that primary control of coordination, the rest of the body doesn't wow. function as well. And so lots of people think of Alexander's technique as work on posture because that's what it seems like on the outside um, and respiratory functioning and voice and speech. And it definitely laid the groundwork for or the blueprint for modern day voice work uh, that you would get in drama conservatories, music conservatories. And Alexander technique is still taught worldwide in those conservatories. I used to teach it in London and here in the United States. Um, I just don't have time anymore, but I highly recommend it. It's very, very, very useful, the work. And the work you do is usually one-on-one with the coach, and they will do some touching you and instructing you, and your kinesthetic sense will become more heightened. You'll be able to have better posture, coordination, a better speaking voice, all of that. Well, and so much of what the audience is picking up on is a nonverbal cue from the speaker. So if the speaker is standing confidently shoulders down relaxed um you know they're they're going to exude a confidence that about what they're talking about just from that positioning that body positioning yeah a confidence in yourself a very a very strong presence a lot of what i do is what you a lot of what i do as a psychotherapist is reading nonverbal cues you know often in in the therapy setting people People will say one thing, but their their body language is saying a whole different thing. <laughs> so um, I yeah. think we're hardwired to pick up on those nonverbals. And, and that's a lot, I think, of what's missing with social media and things like that, text messaging, stuff like that, is, is all that that we pick up behind that. So, so yeah. Yeah. You know no, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, and, and I know this isn't a political discussion, nor do I want it to be, but since there's so many uh, opportunities right now to watch um, people in the political arena speaking, I was thinking about the body language issue with the first Democratic debate that I watched, because uh, so many people felt that better work really did terribly. But the truth of the matter is, I wondered if, because it was only body language, that he was having right. a problem with. If you, what is the difference between and watching listening. a debate, listening to the debate, or reading huh. a transcript? Because the first televised debate that we know happened, we all know that it was Kennedy and Nixon. And I don't know if this is common knowledge, but there were three different groups that were polled, and the people who watched the debate overwhelmingly said Kennedy won. The people who listened to it on the radio <laughs> said it was a tie. And the people who read the transcript overwhelmingly no said Nixon way. won. Yes. Well, that yes is way. a really interesting, <laughs> interesting like a whole sociology thesis. <laughs> <laughs> but it really just goes to your point. So much of what we're picking up on when we're listening to somebody, whether or not we trust them, whether or not we're going to uh, follow them, give them money for their company or their cause or whether, you know, whether or not they can lead well. 
a lot of it is nonverbal communication. And, um, and I've done a lot of research on, well, I've read a lot of books anyway on, on that topic of, um, you know, the facial features or facial expressions that people use um, when they're feeling certain ways and things. Obviously, that's part of my work in what I do as a psychotherapist. But um, the marketing piece of it, like you were saying, and how, how people buy into the belief on, yes, I want to buy this product because they're, you know, they have this face that is trustworthy or whatever. It's it's really an interesting is subject to dive into. I bet you as a, as a person in the public speaking field, have a lot to say about some of these more, uh, you know, the, the political debates and things like that, various different celebrity talks and stuff. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, some of this is subjective. You know, somebody might just simply resonate with you and their technique, their, their, their background and whatnot could be very similar to another person, but there's something just a little bit subjective about it. But I think going back to what we were talking about before, which is managing any um, I mean, just for your listeners, I'm thinking that managing your automatic responses to to the stress of having to speak, which is just another way of saying, how do you manage stage fright? And having very clear sense of why you're there, what you're speaking on, um, what you'd like to accomplish, really having a good blueprint for yourself, whether you write out your speech, whether you bullet point your speech, or whether you wing it, because again, you might be an expert on it and it might not, might not be long. I think those key areas are, are the most important for a public speaker. And the rest is personality and the rest is sort of the creative I like part. That. You know yeah, I, mean? I like that. One of my most favorite TED Talks ever and one of my most favorite public speaker writer people ever is Brene Brown. I loved her um, her YouTube uh, you know, her TED talk that's on YouTube, the power of vulnerability. I watched that probably well, when it came out, so it must have been seven seven or eight nine years ago. Um, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about some of the about the world of TED talks and how it's kind of changed our access to different people as public speaker? I think it's been a great resource. I mean, and it's it's catapulted a lot of careers out there as well. Uh, but it's a great resource for people. You know, you can just go on the TED site and listen to all sorts of topics. And the structure of the TED Talk or the, the main principle they, they stand behind, which is spreading ideas, is a really powerful way to deliver a talk because there it isn't about selling something. It isn't about wanting something from the audience. It isn't, or at least not, not in such a direct way. Um, and so therefore, if you're just spreading an idea, if you're asking people to look at something through a different lens, analyze something in a different way, uh, question their own beliefs, but not for your own personal gain, but really for their gain, I think it's a really powerful forum. Um, I agree. Yeah. It resonates with me a lot. I really, I really love the TED Talks. I think it's neat, too, how they have the TEDx and stuff in the smaller communities and whatnot as well. Um, on that note, mm -hmm. what kind of celebrities have you worked with? I mean, that's kind of your shtick, right? People come to see me on a private level. So I don't really get to say, oh, I, you know, this is, I worked with this oh, person gotcha. or whatnot. Unless they want to write me a testimonial or they feel like something like that. But there's some people that I can talk about in terms of being very proud to work with. Um, one that jumps to mind, I, I wouldn't say that he's a celebrity or a household name. He used to be the 
president of the Bill and Melinda wow. Gates Foundation, um, Jaime, Dr. Jaime Sepulveda. His talk, because it was a TED talk, I can say I, you know, I can say that freely because in the TED, underneath the TED umbrella, everyone has to get coaching to oh. some degree. Um, with if you go to a TEDx or if you're going to the major one, it because they have to look at how you're presenting again to keep in line with the idea that you're spreading ideas, you're not promoting a product right. or selling something or you know whatever so that's just part of the thing you have to write out write it out and a coach has to look at it now some TEDx's do more in-depth coaching than others and the one that I belonged to for a few years I got to do some very in-depth coaching and so anyway Dr. Uh, Sepulveda and I worked together about five sessions or so on his speech and why do I say I'm proud of it uh, I say that because uh, the work he does is so important and the work he was doing with the foundation was so important. And the particular talk that he gave was about time, the concept of time, and what time means to me and what time means to you might be completely different things depending on our circumstance. And his story around that was uh, going down into Mexico and Central America, South America, with a vaccine that was that he developed that would wow. save lives. And children were getting very sick and dying pretty rapidly from some oh, kind of pneumonia. And he created a vaccine for it. And so he flew down into one country and him and his team we're a little tired and they said you know what we're going to take a day we're just going to take a day we've got a day and they went into the village and there was a hundred children that oh had just gosh. died and then he realized wait a minute my concept of time how much time do i have is completely yeah. different wow. to someone else and he said it changed his life and he would never, ever make that decision again, yeah. of course. Um, but the, so those kind, I'm bringing this up because you asked for yeah. somebody, um, a celebrity, he's not necessarily a celebrity, but I would say certainly somebody uh, with massive uh, credibility and uh, somebody I really respect. And also because in my own selfishness, those are the types of people I really like working with. So I like working with the nonprofit speakers. I like working with people who are trying to change the world to make it a better place. I like to work with people, even if it's a, a C-level at a company, but the company's a good company and it's not, certainly it's contributing in some way. Um, so I hope that gives you some kind of answer that that's in interesting yeah, for I mean, your listeners. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly kind of the direction I was going with the question, which is that, you know, these messages that wouldn't make it out there are making it out there because you are helping people find their internal strength to, to give the speech or the talk that they need to give. And that's, I mean, and that's a pretty special thing. You know, I, I can only imagine um, the state that some people are probably in when they come to see you and then to feel kind of really uplifted and hopeful and confident. That's, that's an impressive work that you do. I thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's, it is interesting that for, I would say most of my clients who come in, you know, cause I do have some clients who come to see me because they are speakers and they're already pretty confident. They just want more polishing and they want, you know, different technique and things like that. But for the people who come in and that are struggling with their, with like I, we talked about obstacles, it's really surprising just how fast the work works um, and surprising to them. 
most of the time they'll say, I think this is going to take right. six months or I think this is going to, because they've been holding on to things for so long and it's, they hadn't found the right way to do it yet, move through it yet. And it really isn't the case for me. I work about four to six sessions tops with most people. Um, and yeah, and a, and a great transformation happens and, and yes, I do feel good about the work I do. So thank you very much for that. So, so how can people get in touch with you if they're, if they have a project coming up and, and how early do they need to get in touch with you? I mean, let's, you know, is there a time limit on like their speeches in a month or in six months or in a week or. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for asking. So the best way to get a hold of me is through my website. That's easiest, lisawentz.com, L-I-S-A-W-E-N-T-Z.com. And um, that's easiest. And I respond to emails quite quickly. As far as how far in advance and timing, I think, you know, timing really has to do with the particular talk they're giving. If somebody's got a speech or a conference or something they're going to do, I'm going to map out when they need to see me is fine. Uh, how far in advance really depends. I'm pretty flexible. I don't take that many clients, to be honest with you. So the ones that I do take, I make time for. And um, the book, where is the book available, Grace Under Pressure? Uh, Amazon is probably the easiest to get it at. If you'd like to go right to Lid Publishing, the publisher, uh, that's another LID Lid Publishing. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target also sells it. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's certainly bookstores in the Bay Area because that's where I am that sell it. But if you want to get it online, those are your good online options. And so what is your favorite thing? about this work that you do? What do you think is, you know, the best part of knowing your background and kind of the challenges that you came through to get where you are? What do you think is the best part of it? I think the best part of it is what we were kind of touching on before. When I'm, when I'm able to work with somebody and the two of us together can really make some changes where they feel empowered more present, more able to take their work a little bit further and take their own messaging a little bit further. That's probably my favorite thing. If um, there are occasions where somebody brings me in just a really interesting speech and we get to shape it a little bit and it's almost like the creative work I used to do in acting and directing, that can be very fun for me, I have to admit. Um, So, you know, it depends. But I think the first thing is really what, what has made me feel very happy. I like that. I like that a lot. And, and um, so what about, what about if people want to hire you to public speak to them about this kind of stuff, like maybe at a work uh, function or something like that? um, What, what advice do you share with the audience in those kinds of environments? Mm, It's a good question. It's, it depends on what they're after. So it could be, you know, I was asked recently to speak to a group of women about challenges, you know, gender roles and challenges oh, yeah. that we're still facing and the work that we're still doing. Um, it, sometimes it's just about le- leadership and communication and that kind of thing. So it depends on what the company is after. Uh, I think, am I right on my, oh, no, no, no. I was thinking on my website, I have speaking topics. I actually don't have speaking topics topics on my website. I have speaking topics out in the uh, out in the circuit world. But, um, yeah, I think that if somebody is interested in a speaker coming and to talk about leadership, how we communicate, um, how do we how do we find, you know, presence and empowerment and 
authenticity, then those are the things that I would I would typically speak about. I like that. I, I love that. I, I really like in general what you say about showing up authentically. This was quite a few months back now. And one of the things that she talked about was, um, you know, the importance of showing up authentically and sharing how we feel and, and doing it in a timely and doing it in a timely way. So uh, I love that it's kind of coming full circle you know, uh, with a lot of the prior podcast guests that, that we've had, actually, I feel like it all connects really, um, really synchronous in a synchronistic way. <laughs> and so my last question is, what do you, what do you suggest yeah. when people flub up or they get, they get held up, they get confused, they, they lose their place or they make a mistake, you know, when they have that kind of, oh crap moment, what, what's your advice for that? Don't go down a rabbit hole. Don't go down the rabbit hole of thinking, oh, no, now I've messed up. Everyone knows. And now I can't find my place. And don't go into your head and think about it anymore. I, I, you know what I mean? If it's a little flub up live and in the moment, you laugh it off just like you did just a second ago. <laughs> where your articulation was slightly mumbled and you laughed it off and said, okay, easy for me to say or something like that. And you just move on to your next point. And if you do the work beforehand that I was talking about, build yourself a good blueprint for what you what you want to say, why you're saying it, then you can recover from those moments because you're just going to go into the next mm. moment. The next moment is about this, you know, or whatever. But I think acknowledging what's happening right in the moment in the room uh, when it's an obvious thing. Oh, you lost me. I'm sorry. Hello. 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 Can you hear me? There we go. Okay, you're back. <laughs> okay. So I was saying, yes, when you lose your place or something sort of flubs up or whatnot, it's the same with being present the rest of the time. You, you're still present with the audience. Don't go into your head and, and overthink it. Go, go to where right. you were. I love that. Be present. That's the big takeaway in this episode. Just be present and it should all go as hopefully planned or intended. I feel like that's true of life. Really. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it's that. You know, I mean, if you accept. Yeah, it is. I really am show here up. now. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite books is uh, by Tishnot Han, and it's called You Are Here Now, or You Are Here. And it's all about being present. And that if you are being present, then you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And everything that's happening is exactly as it's supposed to happen. On that note, I guess we could say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And um, hopefully we can um, connect offline and, and go down a little further into kind of what you're working on. I'm, I'm really excited for what you have going on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here. Bye-bye. This okay, is take a good care. Find Happy podcast. Da, 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 da. <laughs> For more inspiration, check out our links. Whoa, is that? Bye-bye. Bye-bye.